Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. I'm your host, Ani Lee. My interest in fiber goes back to childhood, when I'd pore over bedding catalogs and obsess over fiber content and thread count. My mother, bless her, taught me to knit at age 10, and I've fallen increasingly in love with all things fiber ever since. I started the Close Knit Podcast in 2016, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of speaking to over 50 incredible people since then. On this podcast, you'll hear from all kinds of folks who share a love of fibers, from full-time practicing artists to those whose main practice is mending their garments. I'm interested in hearing and sharing as many people's stories and experiences with fiber as I possibly can, because I believe each of these unique stories is powerful and teaches us more about how humans use fiber to make sense of the world around us. This podcast is supported by a very special community on Patreon. Pledging just $5 a month there helps me keep Close-Knit up and running by covering hosting and streaming costs and paying my wonderful editor. I cannot thank you all enough for your support, as it's what enables me to sustainably continue this work. So if you've ever enjoyed an episode, please consider pledging your support at patreon.com slash closeknit. That's www.patreon.com slash closeknit. Hey, it's Ani of Close Knit, and I am here with Sharifa Amalia Al-Ghadri. Sharifa Amalia Al-Ghadri is a multidisciplinary artist and community development worker based in Nipaluna, Hobart, Lutruita, Tasmania. Her creative practice is responsive and explores belonging and cultural heritage in contemporary Australia, drawing on intersectional feminist theory and lived experience as an Asian Australian woman. Amalia's work is both research and process driven and is based in mediums including painting, textiles, installation, and photography. She currently works for Tasmania not-for-profit organization, A Fairer World, managing the Hobart Human Library and Women's Business Projects. Hi, Amalia. Hi, Ani. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. I'm so glad that we're here together. I was thinking before we started talking about the fact that almost everyone I've spoken to this year, and particularly people I've spoken to for the podcast, have been living in America. And that like everywhere around the world is having just such a different experience of what it means to be living in the world right now. And I've been wondering what it, what your experience of life right now is like in Tasmania. And, you know, we are moving into winter. <laughs> I'm like in my closet kind of sweating and you're wearing a puffer jacket, <laughs> but also what it's been like to sort of navigate a global pandemic specifically in Tasmania, which I know is just really different from my own experience in America right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I feel kind of bad saying this, that it's been really cruisy here. We haven't had a case in Tasmania for over a year. Yeah, I read something that was on like ABC Hobart on my Facebook or whatever. And they, I saw this thing that was like, it has officially been a year since we had a community case. Like there have been a few six or something in like quarantine, like isolated cases. Yeah. I just like reading that number just... It was so shocking to me just because of how stark it is in comparison to what our experience has been here. And of course, other parts of the world as well. But I just been so curious, like what it's been like 
opening, closing wise, you know, have you just been inside other people's houses this whole time? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Like, it, I guess like, it's been really strange because obviously, you know, the work that I do is mostly events-based. So we go into schools, we go into workplaces and, you know, we take the human library. Um, predominantly, that's what we do. And at the kind of start of last year, all of a sudden, you know, working for a charity and not being able to go out and actually do that work in the community, which is also, you know, it's a social enterprise kind of model. So that's also our income. So it's kind of like, oh no, how do we do this? And then we've just been so fortunate I think in Tasmania that being a really small island with a you know incredibly sparse population compared to the landmass really it's been fairly easy for us to be able to control and and be really strict I guess for me personally what's been really difficult is that you know none of my family's in Tasmania so I haven't actually seen any of my family because I haven't been able to travel because although Tasmania is incredibly safe and I'm very conscious of the fact that we're really lucky to be able to say that that I haven't I haven't actually been able to see any of my family because of the border co- closures in the rest of Australia and these kind of flare-ups that happen and you know as soon as that happens Tasmania has been really quick to slam down the gates and be like no one's coming in, no one's going out, <laughs> everyone's stay put, stay in Tasmania, you'll be fine, never leave the island, you know, that kind of vibe. That feels so <laughs> accurate. Like that just feels like the Tasmanian way to me in, in some ways. Like I was, as you were saying this, I was thinking it's like not to trivialize like the pandemic at all, but it reminded me of like the first time that I landed in Australia and I had to go through this whole process of like saying whether I was bringing any plant material into the into the country. And I was like, I don't think so. Like, like that, you know, you fill in your form and it's like, have you been on a farm wearing your boots? And have you been in any fresh water regions? And I was like, probably like, I, I don't know. Am I going to like, like kill the, the country? Am I going to like end up killing all these plants <laughs> with my like invasive species? <laughs> like I was so worried. <laughs> Yeah, and then like even coming from mainland Australia to Tasmania, we've got those rules right. about especially fruit. I mean, you would yes. experience <laughs> like so strict. Like you're not allowed to take fruit that you've gotten even just from a supermarket, not from like a farm or like you know your backyard or something. Like supermarket yeah. fruit, not allowed in Tasmania. Got to get Tasmanian fruit yep. just in case. I had to throw away an apple one time because I had brought an apple with me because I was like, I'm probably going to get hungry on the flight. <laughs> there were like a, a dog like came up to me and the guy was like, open your bag. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> throw away your <laughs> apple. I was like, this is just shocking. <laughs> so I've, I've been curious, like what that's meant then for, you know, this experience that you're having, what it's meant for both your your work, like your your literal community organizing work and community development work, but also making work like your, your art practice, like have there been exhibits and shows? What has that been like for you over this last year? It's been really interesting. Like I said, yeah, we, we kind of had this not total closure, but I mean, like the rest of the world, everything kind of like ground to a bit of a halt Mm -hmm. for a while there. And, you know, I was really grappling with this like idea of, okay, I'm a community development worker. My work is about being in the community and working with the community, but I can't go into the community or work with the community. So how do I do my job? You know, and it was kind of like, I was just like in this loop of like, you know, I need to do this, but I can't do it because of this. 
but I need to do this, <laughs> you know, and just kind of chasing my own tail for a long time. But, you know, I, I am really fortunate to work with the people that I do at A Fairer World who are incredibly experienced and, you know, we're really, really small team. There's now, we've since, you know, grown a little bit, but um, there's, you know, there's only about five of us that work for the organization and we rely, you know, mostly on volunteers. So yeah, work-wise, it was really interesting because we had to really reassess how we approach community development. So much of what we do and so much of what is key to the work that we do, and we have always maintained that that ability to have a face-to-face conversation with someone, and particularly with someone that, you know, you would maybe be able to watch a video on YouTube or see a documentary about potentially, you know, so specifically community educators from groups that are commonly stigmatised, marginalised within communities. So people living with disability, people with cultural diversity, people from the LGBTQI community, people with mental health conditions, you know, the really broad spectrum of diversity. Mm. And we were always really so against moving online uh, because Mm. we're like, it has to be face-to-face. You have to be able to connect. And then we kind of were seeing, you know, as you and I are now, all these kind of Zoom calls pop up and we're kind of like, oh, okay, no, this makes sense. This this is actually possible. And you can, yes, it's different, but you can absolutely still have a really meaningful uh, conversation. So yeah, we kind of pivoted really sharply um, mm. and had to learn very, very quickly how to become very technologically literate um, in a very short space of time. And then schools opened up again. And we were able, you know, by July, you know, again, being in Tasmania, we were really fortunate that we were able to have unrestricted movement or fairly unrestricted movement. You know, we had to follow all of these restrictions around COVID safety, of course, but we were able to go and work in school. So working with young students again, and we've been able to do that since. So we've done since July last year, I think we're up to like 60 workshops or something for the Hobart Human Library, which is like a huge amount. And, you know, Women's Business, my other project, you know, we were scheduled to do that last year and with COVID obviously again everything kind of timelines got pushed out and we're able to do it early this year so yeah I guess like in that aspect it's been again we've been really really lucky because at first it was looking really scary and really impossible and because we are so fortunate to have such low incidences of, of COVID in Tasmania that we're able to kind of go about things like it's like it's not a pandemic, which feels really surreal because, mm-hmm. again, I'm so acutely aware that that's absolutely not the case in so much of the world at the moment. Yeah, And, yeah, for arts practice, like, there weren't exhibitions, you know. Like, I was prior to COVID, like many artists in Hobart, you know, that was our kind of, (laughs) you go to like an opening every week or every fortnight or something like that. And all of a sudden there was nothing. And we had, yeah, I had quite a few shows kind of scheduled to happen last year. And again, was just incredibly lucky, I think, that, you know, a collaborative show that I had with Tilly Wood, who is another artist that I collaborate with on occasion, you know, we had the first show to reopen at Salamanca Arts Centre, which was in August, which was fantastic. I was able to have a show in November um, at Moonar Arts Centre. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of felt like we've had this really gradual return to what feels like normality now for us like it seems a little unfair given what's going on in the rest of the world but we're so lucky that we get to be able to do things like that and and for me personally it's been incredible to be able to actually do that because I think I probably would have gone 
a lot more sideways um, emotionally and mentally if I hadn't had that opportunity to have, you know, my work, both my, you know, creative practice and, and my community work actually being realised. I think that would have been really, really tough, you know, the first couple of months when we were in um, lockdown. I really struggled with not being able to and I, I really, you know, Melbourne's currently just... um returned back into lockdown I'm, I'm yeah they've had a lot of issues and a lot of lockdowns there and you know talking to the friends who, who are artists and uh, creatives there talking about how incredibly difficult it is to be in that situation so yeah, yeah. been really really lucky I'm glad I mean I think it can feel like very you know you can feel guilty about the fact that that's been been the experience but it's I mean it's great no one would wish that it was the other way around. And it's just been so, it's so good that that's been, that that's been the case. It's been so fascinating from my perspective as like being somebody who used to live there and, you know, seeing what I see from Facebook and social media and whatever of friends who are, you know, playing gigs again. Like that, that idea is, you know, my, my choir has been online for like over a year, (laughs) whatever, um, which is bleak, super bleak, but we're, you know, we're getting to a point now where it's like, we're starting to think about performance again. And actually that, that's something that I was curious about because women's business is, is performance-based, right? Can you tell me about women's business and, and like sort of give the background for our listeners of like what that show kind of entails? And yeah, for sure. I, I have to admit women's business is like my favorite project. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have like, like children, you shouldn't have a favorite, but it is absolutely my all-time favorite show um, and thing to work on. So um, yeah, Women's Business is essentially, um, it's a project. It's, I think this year is, it's, it's fifth season. So it's been running for a while and an incredible, incredible um, educator and advocate and worker, Ginny Annals, who um, runs a Students Against Racism project kind of co-created this this show initially um, and essentially it was with Students Against Racism it's working with young people from migrant refugee background who now live in um, Hobart and basically they work through ways to share the story and the journey and the experiences of being someone from refugee migrant background to essentially educate um, and engage with and connect with the broader community. Hobart is not a hugely culturally diverse place. Um, it is changing and it is shifting. But, you know, even when women's business first started, which was, you know, I think seven, six or seven years ago, mm. there was not an understanding about, and particularly for um, Muslim women, uh, it's a really, you know, if you're a Muslim woman who wears hijab, it's really obvious that you're a Muslim woman who wears hijab, you know, it's it's a really visible identifier. And Ginny had these uh, two young t- women um, who were Muslim who wore hijab and they approached her and they're like, look, we really love what we're doing with Students Against Racism, but what we really think we need is a platform where we can gather with other women and that we can share our stories and explain it specifically about the hijab because there's so much misconception, there's so much misunderstanding and fear around essentially what is a scarf that I'm wearing on my head. And I, you know, if I have this opportunity to have that conversation, I feel like I'll feel more comfortable because I can belong to the community that I'm in. But also other people don't have, you know, other people in the community don't have to feel afraid of me. 
so that kind of became this conversation with the rest of the young women in the Students Against Racism group of, you know, if you're having a conversation with someone, you kind of need an icebreaker, right? So, like, you know, particularly when you're talking you know, English is not your first language. A lot of these students, they're all learning English. So they've possibly never learned any English before. So language is a little bit of a barrier. So when you're trying to have that conversation with someone, you're trying to have that conversation in a language that isn't your first language. What's your kind of icebreaker that you use? You know, quite often, I think with multicultural stuff, we gravitate towards food because food is such a, you know, it's so universal in so many ways. And it's there's something really quite magical about being able to share a meal with someone and connect over like the memories that that can evoke and things like that. And so many of the women that they were having this conversation around, they're like, actually what we would, it would be about our clothes. It would be about, you know, this dress that my mum made me from material that my grandmother wove, or it would be, you know, this hijab is something that has been handed down in our family and it's, you know, only for special occasions or, you know, so it kind of started as a fashion show. It started as a fashion show and using fashion as this vehicle to understand more about each other. So I am a a super fan of (laughs) um, learning about other people's experiences, particularly empowering women. I obviously am a huge fan of textiles and the role that I think, you know, and I feel the textiles play in the way that we understand and communicate in these really subtle, really beautiful ways. So yeah, I was so jazzed when Ginny asked me to be a part of women's business and, you know, kind of assist her with it four and a bit years ago now was my first season. And I just fell in love. I mean, addiction's probably close to, I was just so addicted to (laughs) that environment because essentially what we do is co-develop and co-create a public show. So we work with a group of women of any age who are from a culturally diverse background who are in the, you know, greater Hobart area, which is, you know, for the listeners, quite a large area because our population is, you know, as I say, not too dense. So we're quite spread out. So, yeah, and we work over, you know, a period of months to create a show where we interweave, you know, storytelling and experience sharing and fashion. And then we take that out to the public and it's an all women cast, all women crew, all women audience. And it is, like I said, addiction is probably the the best way to describe it. It is just such an overwhelmingly positive experience. And even, you know, in past show seasons where I, you know, have had stuff going on personally that have been really challenging and I've kind of been like oh my god like I don't I don't want to go to work like I feel I feel awful (laughs) I don't want to do this and you know then I get to go and work on this project where there's women who have been through the most extraordinarily difficult things and they are just like powerhouses you know they're just incredible and everyone is just so happy to be able to share parts of themselves and have that then reciprocated from the audience and have these like electric little connections happening in this like really immediate way. It's I've never ever seen anything like it. And I yeah, literally like like I said, I will you have to stop me. I will keep talking about it oh, <laughs> for like it. hours if I'm allowed. It's <laughs> so sweet. I yeah, I remember you getting involved with this when I was still living in Hobart and I just it sounded so powerful and so special to have this 
to have it be textiles and clothing based, like just, I'm actually really curious to hear more from you about specifically what you said around, like, you were like, I just believe that textiles have this sort of like inherent power, that they're important. And I obviously agree with you, but I'm curious to know more about like how that belief came to be or what kind of led you to that place. Like you clearly have lots and lots of experience with it in your adult life and in your work, but like what sort of like brought you to that belief? I think, I think it's a a huge combination of different things. I think, I mean, one of the, I guess, if we're going to go chronologically, one of the earliest, um, you know, classic, my grandmother, you know, she was an incredible, you know, I think artist. Yes, she only made things for the domestic sphere, but the things that she was making was incredible. You know, all of these incredibly intricate jumpers and just the amount of care and consideration and time and effort that goes into creating a garment for someone and holding them and clothing them in that warmth. And then the artistry that goes with that. I just I just find that so fascinating. And there's something really that I guess just warms my heart about that. I, I It really has, I've always found it really fascinating. My grandma, you know, she was the one who taught me to knit for the first time, taught me to crochet. You know, I remember, you know, going to like little workshops with her and having all these craft projects. And, you know, my sister and I, when we were really young, made this like, you know, looking back, it's terrifying, the photos of it. But we, you know, my grandma was also a very keen gardener, you know, still is. And she needed a a scarecrow. There were birds eating things in her garden. So my sister and I visiting one time decided we were going to make her a scarecrow and like spent these days creating this like stuffed thing with like all these like sewn on patches and like life-size human scarecrow that was just made completely out of just like scraps <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? it was and like I said looking back terrifying but it was just so fun and it was just like this beautiful collaborative experience and I, I just loved I guess the, for me personally as well how tactile textiles are I think that particularly when they are handmade or there's something that even if it's not handmade, I suppose, the the things that have been handled, I keep like rubbing my fingers, they're things that have been handled and things that have been cherished, I suppose, you know, it's, there's something really emotive and evocative about textiles. And I, I feel like I'm probably not doing justice in explaining that, but it feels that something like, you know, really deep and inherent and, you know, in the way that we as humans there was this thing that we were talking about, um, Tilly and I, in one of our most recent shows, that, you know, from the moment that we're born, we're swaddled. And there's that feeling of being wrapped in cloth and how that is an expression of care. How, you know, that's so much of how we express care is to have cloth and to have textiles and have fabric involved. And I think that there's that really, yeah, there's something just really quite deep and intangible about it in a way that goes so much more beyond the how tactile and and, uh, comforting it is on that surface as well. I think I guess the other side of it is as I've gotten older and learnt more things and and grown as a person and and also gotten more involved in exhibiting art and, and being in I guess the arts scene there's a kind of political element to it for me as well as this, you know, the historic exclusion of women from high art and particularly the 
I, I can never find a word strong enough to express <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I haven't quite pinned it down yet, but not just the exclusion, but the, the complete diminish, you know, completely diminishing the artistry of the domestic sphere and how that has historically been excluded from fine arts. And we know now there's some fantastic people working with textiles of all different genders and and cultural backgrounds. But, you know, I think there's also the cultural element as well in it that a lot of non-European art is textile-based, you know, particularly, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, where my family is, you know, you have batik, you have all kinds of weaving, you have all this incredible, again, artistry. Is, it, it's a real art, but it is so excluded because it is not Botticelli or, you know, it's not this wonderful marble sculpture. It's not part of that Eurocentric canon. And so I think for me, textiles are also like, and choosing them as a medium in fine art is actually really political as well. There's a really sentimental side for me personally that, you know, that I was talking about earlier, but there's also that political side of, okay, who gets to decide, you know, what gets into the gallery and what gets hung on the wall and that only oil painting is valid or only sculptures are valid as a type of art form? Why can't it be a beautiful quilt? Why can't it be this magnificent jumper, you know? I think it's just one of those things that I it's always baffled me and it's kind of like a bit of a maybe a little bit... <laughs> Uh, stubborn of me, the stubborn part of me kind of digging my heels in and going, well, if you're going to let me into a gallery, then I am going to do an embroidery. So there. (laughs) Yes, totally. So much of what you're saying just resonates so deeply for me in terms of just, I always am rubbing my fingers together. Like when talking to people on the podcast, as I'm just thinking about, I think that there is such an importance to the tact Tility. I think I've tried to use that word a few times and I don't even know if that's a word, but the, they're just the tactile. I'm glad that you said it because I was going to and I was just like, oh, I'm not going to say that right. Yeah, I don't think it's right, but I'm just going to use it anyway. But I think, and I really appreciated it as well, what you said that you and Tilly have both noticed about that kind of universality, that that early comfort and care that comes through textiles. I, I like gave a presentation to my work about, it's like, getting to know each other. And I was telling them like about how the thing you're wearing is like, is a textile. And like that there are these two structures like knit and woven and like, you can look down and discover that. And I felt like there was this, I felt like it was an important thing to like remind people who don't, who are like very much behind computers all day and think about technology and stuff to like, remember that we all are wearing clothing (laughs) in some form or another. And it sort of binds us together in this very like fundamental way in that we like pretty much all have to wear clothes all the time. And probably all of us are thinking about, maybe not even consciously thinking about just sort of the comfort that we get from that, from that garment being on our bodies or or dressing ourselves in a certain way that makes us feel a certain type of way, whether it's powerful or comfortable or whatever that is, it's just sort of, it's very human. And I, yeah, I just appreciate that element of it in addition to the fact that like there is a there is this whole other side of why to choose textiles I and I think both of both of those sides probably contribute to why it it plays such a role in your work right of like 
it's sustainable for you because it feels good. You know, like there's this like inherent sustainability for you because you like working with textiles and it, it brings you comfort. It brings you familial nostalgia. It, you know, it gets, satisfies this part of you, but it also allows you to express this part of yourself of your own identity of, you know, this, this sort of fire in your belly about the place that women and marginalized cultures have had outside of this sphere of what's been considered art. I feel like that's like both of those pieces. It makes so much sense to me that that's, that's how you think of it. But I think that that maybe is part of why it like continues on in your practice. I would love to hear specifically about like your textile practice and how you engage with them. And I think, feel free to take this question anywhere, but I'd love specifically to hear about, (laughs) I prepped you for this because I'm excited about it. Um, uh, Some of your work, you have pieces, there's a piece called Kempt, a piece called Costume, and a piece called Fool's Gold that you've made, which like all have this really kind of human body hair, like pubic hair, hair, you know, this like slightly grotesque hair element, which I think is so cool and interesting. And like, you know, gives you that kind of, I'm kind of shrugging up my shoulders. It does that whole, it just sort of like, it's evocative of a feeling inside you. And I'm just, yeah, I want to hear more about how you make and why you make and, and what you're going for with that stuff. Yeah, I've got another piece as well that you might not have seen, which is kind of, it was a precursor to the Fool's Gold series, but um, it's called Growing Pains. And it's like a really big, grotesque, um, it's kind of like a a really misshapen heart almost of like a kind of navy satin. And I actually, speaking of hair, used my own hair, which sounds really loopy, but... (laughs) I had just shaved my head. Oh, I was like, you I, have had a shaved yeah, head. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just shaved my head and kept my hair because, like, you know, it might come in yeah. one day. I mean. And then I was like, yeah, of course it is. I'm making a sculpture. I need my hair. <laughs> so I put my hair in there. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's a really interesting one for me personally because I think I have – a really weird relationship with body hair. I think that my experience, you know, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And, you know, for those of you who don't know that area, it's very beachy. It's very hot. You're out on the beach all the time. The particular time that I was growing up, the aesthetic was be blonde, be tan, absolutely hairless and really, really thin. Um, (laughs) Yeah. As an Asian woman, you know, or, you know, Asian Australian thinness, okay, I could probably do that. My skin is naturally a little bit darker. Hairlessness, not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Genetically, not predisposed to that at all. (laughs) And I, you know, I, particularly when I was really, you know, really young in primary school, even, you know, I was really bullied and I was picked on for some of the hair that I had on my face, you know, I had, because I've had sideburns and all of the you know, Caucasian students, that was not something that they had. But it was, you know, I so I've got this really weird relationship with it where I'm kind of, I think even now, you know, months out from my 30th birthday, I'm still trying to grapple with how do, how do I feel about it? Because on the one hand, I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever, I do what I want. It's, you know, it's not and it's not something that anyone, and I would never expect anyone else to feel ashamed of it, but I still personally have these moments where I'm like, oh, 
all my eyebrows are getting a little bit, oh, watch out, I've got to go pluck them or, you know. So I've got this weird relationship and I feel like that those particular pieces that um, you mentioned earlier, it's kind of me trying to process that and I feel like a lot of my art that is self-reflective is almost like I feel like it straddles this really dicey area between like therapy (laughs) and healing and you know being like a little bit narcissistic I I don't know where it sits in there but so much of it is I think me trying to process what is my relationship to it and you know is it really okay because I think that you know particularly earlier pieces you know Kempt and costume I think were kind of earlier ones that I'd made Kempt was actually I think that was the first piece I ever showed publicly in Hobart so yeah it's special I think that's what it was yeah but that kind of it was so much part of like a a broader dialogue I guess in like a feminist sphere this idea that we shouldn't police women's bodies and it seems silly even to have to articulate that but you know all of a sudden this was becoming a really, really loud conversation. It wasn't a conversation that was being had behind doors anymore. It was a conversation that people were having on social media or they were having it in public or they were, you know, really beating the drum and getting loud about it. And I feel like it kind of, yeah, having that backdrop, external conversation around what it was and what was acceptable for a woman's body with relation to hair kind of made me feel quite reflective because of my own experiences and and part of creating those works I think was processing some of that and like I said I think I'm still in that process but I really feel like and particularly there's sculpture I mentioned earlier growing pains it's really grotesque <laughs> it's really grotesque um when I showed it I had a, a solo in Launceston and I showed the piece and yeah people were kind of like it makes me really uncomfortable <laughs> And I was like, yeah, no, that's kind of, I get that because it is pretty gross, but (laughs) that's kind of the point, you know, for me, that piece, it's in the shape of a heart and I've essentially wrapped my hair in gold twine, a gold embroidery thread, and then studded it into this kind of like really folded, chunky fat. It kind of looks like fat rolls almost of this like Mm. kind of navy blue heart. And I studded the hair in the shape of a Southern Cross, which is a very iconic Australian tattoo, (laughs) Um, particularly on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, very popular. Um, And there's a lot of very particular beliefs and uh, stereotypes, I suppose you could say, that go with that. But for me, that piece was really about the growing pains of being in that particular area at that point in time and how difficult it was for me personally to feel like I had to police myself and my body all the time. And so I kind of, again, it feels like the stubborn part of me. Maybe I think we've found something about the way that I make art. It's just me maybe thumbing my nose a little bit. That's not great. Um, that's an interesting thing to take away. <laughs> I don't think that that's but, it at all. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's But it's kind of like I like that people were uncomfortable Yes. I, you know, I kind of wanted to share that discomfort in a way. Yeah. 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 It can, and I think it can be hard to explain why it's uncomfortable to, especially to men. It's like, I feel like there's just this expectation like, oh, you, you know, 
why can't you just feel okay about it? Like, why can't you just not shave and be fine about that? I'm like, well, have you ever noticed that when I'm not shaved wherever people are looking like that, I can see people staring at my body. Like, I don't, yeah. yeah. I like, yeah, it, it totally depends on where you are and the people around you, but it's so still a thing that we're processing in the whole world. I feel like it's sort of, or sorry, I should say the Western world. I just have no idea. I can't even begin to speak to the outside of the Western world, but I just feel like in the West, I would expect for some reason I have this expectation that like, yeah, it's totally cool to just be so hairy or whatever. And I just feel like it's still not, I'm still surprised how often hairy people get some kind of othered or some kind of like people who look femme who are hairy, I should say, because like men, mask dudes don't deal with this, I don't think. But it's just, yeah, I I think too, there's something interesting. There's been a conversation that I've kind of noticed online a little bit around like the millennial sort of vernacular around not necessarily hairlessness per se, but I think that that's like a, that's one facet of this sort of body policing that went on in our, like, you know, the generation that we are in especially when we were in high school and early college of just like super low-waisted jeans and the term muffin top. And, you know, there's just these like awful, awful things that came out of that era that were just aimed at tearing girls and women down, like people who are femme and already dealing with all sorts of nonsense in the world. Also having to be told that like everything about their body is wrong, including their body hair. Yeah, <laughs> And like to, a, like you're saying to another level when it's non-white body hair, when it's hair that's on a non-white body or hair that grows differently because heaven forbid you don't have the same kind of like hair growth background as a white person does. It's just very frustrating. And it makes a lot of sense to me that like this work that it's it's work that you're processing. I think that like I think that there's a reason some of this stuff is coming out online because it's a lot of people are about this age processing what happened back then to them and just sort of, yeah, it makes sense to me that your work then kind of elicits this like discomfort because to some extent people are probably self-identifying with like, oh, I feel grotesque when I don't shave or I feel like I've been made to feel grotesque when I have had X, Y, Z about my body that just didn't sort of fit this stereotype of the female form or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think like I've really noticed, particularly, you know, in the last couple of years that I've been having these kinds of conversations with other women who have, you know, a similar kind of heritage to me. You know, I I do have like a quite a, quite a big ethnic mix that I've got, you know, friends that have a similar kind of mix and, and having conversations about this with them. And I guess that trying to explore how that intersection plays out of you know how much of this is how we have experienced it as as Asian Australian women how much of it is you know I guess a a more universal kind of era specific I suppose experience for femme people and, and women in particular areas of the western world and how much of it is you know not to blunt words but how much of it is racism mm-hmm. how much of it is othering because of you know genetic predispositions because of ethnicity how much of it is holding up an unachievable universal beauty standard and I think it's been I've had some really really interesting conversations with friends of mine who you know it is this really difficult one to unpack and I think that 
yeah, there is that universality that I think a lot of people, yeah, do identify either having perpetrated that behaviour because I think, you know, we internalise so much of it and then, you know, as it, as it goes, we then put that on other people for that standard and that expectation on others but as well as ourselves. Um, but then kind of, I guess, this this other perspective or this other angle of, you know, where does race come into it? Where does ethnicity come into it? Is it an element at all? I think, you know, for me personally, I think it was um, being the, you know, in the schools and the area geographically that I was, it was like not diverse at all. And so I, I think that for me personally, it was tied in so much with my background as well as these unattainable, unrealistic universal standards as well that were kind of this expectation. I had also just like as a side note, had totally forgotten that muffin top was a thing until you said it. Just yeah, I'm sorry to bring it back up. It's horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. Yeah, I was reading a newsletter that was like bringing it up and I was like, oh, I never want to think about the fact that we've made words to describe parts of I mean you only ever use it to describe a woman's body it's just it's awful like it's yeah there's nothing about that that's generous or kind or needed to be a thing but it was I I am glad that you I'm really glad you brought that up too because I think like that is an element that I I don't experience myself and so it's really important to me to know how that's felt for other people who have experienced that. And I think you're absolutely right that like that it may be that it's sort of a melting pot of lots of bigotry, but that definitely one of the elements is racism. That like dark hair on darker body, like there's just all of these elements that are caught up in the way in which people are perceiving of others and othering people. Yeah. I I would love to hear about the work that you made that was that was kind of speaking directly to racism in Australia and speaking directly to kind of Islamophobia in Australia. Can you, I know that there was, there was a lot to that piece and (laughs) I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to make sure that we do talk about it because it it feels like a really important piece where you kind of took some, this like really, you know, sort of tender act of like creating all of these like sweetly colored embroideries that were really talking about something that is so, can be so rife and rampant in Australia in particular and particularly in those moments so I'd love to hear more about that piece yeah so that was I think November I had I exhibited that um in Hobart and essentially I I guess it was kind of an extension almost of those conversations that I was having um with friends who also you know came from my father's side of the family or Muslim you know so coming from a Muslim family growing up in Australia with that heritage kind of almost sitting on you and being of the age where we're post 9-11. And it was just, I guess, Islamophobia is so overt in the Australian media. I think that it's really, that was something that I just found really um, difficult to stomach, I suppose, because I, I do a lot of work around, you know, professionally around diversity and inclusion and, you know, talking about unconscious bias and, you know, the kinds of things that feed into it. And and media, you know, we we, we love to blame media. We really do. We love to be like, the media has done this, which is not 100% true, but absolutely they play a really vital part. And particularly, you know, I think, you know, so much of my work ties into this, you know, women's business does as well. It's a great example that when you're in a population that doesn't have exposure to real people from the community that is being stigmatized or stereotyped or what have you, 
your only exposure to that community is the media. And so for the last, you know, 20-odd years, the Islamophobia in Australia has been able to be so overt because, yes, the population has grown um, since 9-11, but there is not a huge amount of exposure to people from that faith and a lot of people's exposure to it is through media, which is overtly Islamophobic and there's you know it's really easy to go back as I did for this work um, it, I did a lot of research into looking at you know um, newspaper databases and you can search for keywords in headlines or articles or whatever and I went back um, over the last 19 years of headlines and you know I had some keywords I had you know Islam I had terrorism I had jihad hmm. all these words that are used interchangeably essentially. So there, and there was always this conflation of if we are talking about a Muslim person, they are a terrorist. And if we, if they're not a terrorist, we're not going to mention that they're Muslim. So it was this really, and it is really horrifically overt. And some of the headlines were just, you know, sickening. But for me, I think what I really wanted to do with that work is explore how much of our common vernacular and how much of our day-to-day speech inculcates these ideas that we kind of absorb through media we absorb them through nursery rhymes was the other thing that I looked at all that common idioms because it's so ingrained into the way that we communicate but we don't actually look at what is the weight of the words that we're using we don't stop to think okay, if I use these words interchangeably or I say boys will be boys or I say, you know, what am I actually saying when I say that and what am I actually, what behaviours, what attitudes am I pardoning? What am I allowing myself to get away with and not be responsible for? So what I really wanted to do with this work was, and it, it was actually, I'll be honest, it was really hard to make. I made it in quite a short like the actual physical making. I did yeah. research for, you know, months, but the work itself was really hard to make because it was so hard to stomach some of the headlines. And I, you know, I took excerpts from headlines and they were just, yeah, just sickening. They were sickening, the things that people were saying. And I really wanted to kind of have this, my friend um, very cruelly kind of described it as trapping people, trapping my audience, because it's this, you know, really pastely, really like nursery rhyme kind of vibe. It's textile. So it's like soft, it's tactile. It's really gentle, really beautiful, quite infantile almost palette. So it looks like, oh, this is really sweet and really cute. And then people would get closer and they would read, you know, it was a series of 16 of like, you know, one would say, you know, boys will be boys. And they're kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, that's an idiom that we say in Australia. And then next to it, it would have, you know, wash away the West. And then, you know, brides of jihad. And, you know, all of these like quite confronting excerpts that I think in a way it kind of has the same kind of effect as those like hairy sculptures in that it was quite grotesque you know <laughs> at first you're like oh this is nice this is nice colors it's nice and soft and squishy or whatever and then you look a bit closer and it's like oh I'm very uncomfortable now actually I'm quite uncomfortable with what you're saying with this work and I don't really want to think about it thank you <laughs> 
Yeah. I feel like I've heard this from a few different people where like part of their choice of using textiles is this like, (laughs) not exactly to trap people per se, but kind of, you know, it's kind of that. It's like, here's this soft thing that I I can kind of wrap you up in. And now let me talk to you about prison abolition or let me talk to you about Islamophobia. You know, it's like this gentle way in to a conversation that is bigger and scarier and important and something that people are going to always shy away from and not want to have, but that we need to have. And that's, I think, part of what makes your work really important and impactful. And like you say, like elicits a sort of reaction from people is because it's like, it looks sweet. It looks soft. It looks sort of like in some ways it is self-reflective, but it is also this sort of outward uh, critique and an important conversation starter about the sorts of things that people never want to talk about. I just prefer to be like, that's not a thing I think about. I have a cushy life. I, you know, haven't thought about COVID in months. I live in Tasmania. Everything's fine, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's us to a T. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I I, not to like, not to <laughs> shit on anyone. I just, you know, I feel like my experience of Tasmania was very like, it was really easy to feel totally isolated from the rest of the world in a really convenient way, in a way that just felt like, oh, I have a lovely peaceful life here. I have lovely friends. I have good farmer's market food. Like it was really easy. This is, I think, part of why we found each other and why we found activities to do together. Cause we were like, wait, why is no one having this conversation? Like, why is there nobody talking about just like feminism 101? Like clearly a lot of people around us need this, need this conversation to happen. Why is no one holding space for this? And I just feel like in the time that I've been away, you've just continued to grow and grow and grow. That kind of community within Hobart and the work that you've done around all of those conversations that just have needed to happen. It's just super inspiring to see. Thank you so much. I think that's really nice of you to say. I think, yeah, I think so much of what I want to do with art is, is try and yeah, maybe not trap people. <laughs> Trying to push people into seeing a different perspective and engaging in a conversation that they wouldn't otherwise engage with. I think that because we are, as you say, we have this incredible privilege of being in our own little world kind of in Tasmania where we get to just be like, that's not really my problem. I don't need to think about that. We have that a privilege, some of us, and I think that in a way that's really beautiful, but what it then means is, and particularly with, you know, this this body of work that um, we're talking about at the moment, like what that means or what that means in my understanding is that we are now, you know, we can become so easily complicit in propping up systems or behaviours that are actually really actively harmful just because we can't be asked to you know, engage with it because it doesn't super directly affect us. You know, that that's kind of the attitude. And, you know, it's very Australian that she'll be right. And I just, <laughs> which, I, yeah, you're, you are very familiar with and as is a very popular saying here. But it's just, I think for me, it's just, no, actually that's not, I'm, I'm not content with that. And I feel like for me personally, I wouldn't be able to feel comfortable with, with and in and of myself if I was complicit and if I didn't use, you know, the very small platform that I have to try and have those conversations and trying to push other people into engaging with those conversations, even if it's just dipping a toe in, even if it is just like, okay, I really don't like this. 
even in saying, I really don't like this, I'm really uncomfortable, you're acknowledging that this is happening. You're acknowledging that there's a conversation there and you might not engage with that conversation right now. It might not be a conversation that you are ready to come to for the next 10 years, but at least you've had that initial engagement and hopefully you will eventually join that conversation at some point. That is my very idealist, (laughs) try to like, you know, kind of uh, very optimistic, I suppose, heedlessly optimistic hope for all of my my work that I'm making in that space. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I, I'm similar to you where I'm just a very I'm just very hopeful and in, in a maybe naive way sometimes. But I think that that's that's the whole that's the whole thing, right? We need people who are willing to be naive about the possibility that people will listen and be willing to hear it, even if it's 10 years down the road from now. Absolutely. Well, I know you have to go and I don't want to keep you past the time that I'm allowed to have you. I wish I have more I want to ask, but we'll have to like, we'll have to catch up again soon. Thank you so much, Amalia, for being here with me today. It was wonderful to talk with you about your work and your practice. And there's just so many, so much, so much good stuff that you're doing. And it's just a treat to get to catch up about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely to see you and yeah, be able to chat about the things that I'm yeah really passionate about and generally don't shut up about anyway so it's nice to have that yeah a little recording because maybe I can play that to people so that at least it's a set time and I won't go on for days and days um here's your recording if you want to know what I'm about I like just imagined you with a little tape like here's a tape here's like a little I don't know why I thought that like that's literally never going to happen but yeah I like it though. I, I think like, you know, it, it's probably a, a nice considerate way to give people a, a little taster before I get really overexcited and talk about women's business or like, you know, embroidery for the next two hours. So <laughs> I'm here for it. I am here for it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. The Close Knit Podcast is hosted by me, Ani Lee. A huge thank you to Andrew Bruce for writing podcast theme music that makes me genuinely smile every time I hear it. And giant thanks to my amazing producer, Amelia Harubi. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash close knit.